It's been a few weeks since, I guess one week since we've uh, looked at this Assurance of Salvation uh, series, and so I kind of want to kind of review just a little bit. We started this asking the question, how does a person come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior? Again, asking that question from the Bible, because so many times we have this mentality, as long as I say this prayer, as long as I come down to the altar, as long as I'm at like winter jam and, and say this simple prayer out loud and raise my hand, that's it. I got my fire insurance. That's what some people really think. But how does a person come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior according to the Bible? Well, it comes from that public confession, that baptism, that repentance, that turning, that saying, I am going to follow Jesus now and not follow myself or follow sin. So then we ask this question, you know, what happens after a person does that? What happens inwardly when a person comes to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior? And that understanding of who we are in Christ, and that's a phrase that we see over and over again, especially in the book of the letters of Paul, that a person is in Christ, they're a believer in Jesus. And we've seen that uh, the first one we saw here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, that person becomes a new creation in Christ. Their old sinful lifestyle is gone. Their new creation has taken place. The other thing we saw is that they have become reconciled to God. They were once enemies of God. They are now friends of God. They have this relationship that was broken is now restored. And again, that's usually how we use that understanding that there's a broken relationship and there's a strained relationship and we become reconciled with our friends or with our family. That relationship has been restored. And so now we actually can call our Heavenly Father our Heavenly Father. We can actually call Him Father. We can actually call Him as, as Paul says, Abba Father, which is that term that the Jewish boys and girls would use to their daddy. God isn't some... God as distant as the Old Testament. But God is this heavenly Father that we can turn to that loves us dearly. Other thing we saw is that we are righteous. We are right with God. We have met God's perfect standard. Again, that we have to get that through our understanding that only perfect people can get into heaven. And so if you sin one time, if you disobey God one time, that's it. You sealed your fate. But Jesus perfectly obeyed and He was righteous. And what happens when a person puts their faith and trust in Jesus? What Jesus does, Jesus' righteousness, perfection is applied to us. So when God the Father sees us, He sees us as righteous. He sees us as we meet God's perfect standard. We pass the test. We saw that again in those two places. 2 Corinthians 5, 20-21 and Romans 3, 21-22. But not only that, we have been justified. We have been set free. That understanding, that, and again, the kind of justification that kind of comes alongside of that understanding of being redeemed, that God set us free as we were singing. I am free, not so that I can... Again, we love these, these verses, especially our, our Pentecostal friends love these verses. Well, wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And so many times, if you've been to sometimes the Pentecostal churches, we, you hear that. And so many times that, that gives the people the, the, the ability to, hey, let's run around and just jump around and, and act like crazy people. That's not what that verse is talking about where the spirit of the lord is there is freedom means that we are free from our sin we are free from the punishment of our sin we are free from the slavery of our sin because jesus has redeemed us if we 
If you are a part of our, our Wednesday night act, uh, Bible study, we've been talking about the, the plagues and about what happened in Exodus. And God comes to Moses and says, I'm going to redeem my people from the slavery of Egypt. Same word. I'm going to set my people free. This is God did that physically with the Israelites. God does that spiritually. So now we have freedom that we can live in a way that is pleasing and honoring to God. Another thing we have is we have peace with God. We are no longer an enemy of God. We have peace. Just as like two countries are warring with each other and all of a sudden they are at peace, they become this peaceful and there's no more fighting, that's what happens with us. It's not so much God's fighting against us, it's that we are shaking our fist at God and saying, I want nothing to do with you. That's what you were like before Christ. And then, well, last time we were looking in uh, the same passage, we talked about how we can boast. We can boast in three things. We can boast in our hope, the hope and understanding that, that one day we will be in the presence of God. That's our hope. Then when we get to Revelation chapter 22, that's the hope that we're hanging on to. That, that, that we will be able to dwell with God in, in a new physical heavens and a new physical earth. That we will be able to dwell with Him forever and ever and ever and to see Him for who He is, to see Him enthroned on His throne, to see Him having the, the, the thousands upon thousands upon thousands of angels worshiping Him, to see people from every tribe, tongue, and nation bowing down and worshiping Him. That's the hope. When God will make everything right, there'll be no more pain, no more sorrow, no more sickness, no more diseases. That's the hope we're hanging on to. That we can boast in our sufferings. Not because we enjoyed the suffering, and that's what James talks about. You know, what, are, what is our attitude when we face various trials, when we face various difficulties? We should have one of joy because God works through those sufferings to, to work in our lives. To mold us, to make us more like Himself. That's what Romans chapter 8, the sovereignty of God is all about. He uses those hard times in our lives so we understand that perseverance that we can hang on and not give up. And our boasting in God because we can't do anything. This great gift of salvation isn't in and of ourselves. This great gift of salvation is only done because of what God has done for us. And God freely gives it and opens and says, would you receive it? It's a free gift. So that's who we are. A couple of years ago, there was a, a song uh, by a, a guy by the name of Matthew West. And that's a song that says, hello, my name is. And it starts off by saying this. No, hello, my name is regret. I'm pretty sure we have met. Every single day of your life, I'm the whisper inside that won't let you forget. Hello, my name is Defeat. I know you recognize me. Just when you think you can win, I'll drag you right back again till you've lost all belief. But this is who we are in Christ. And so then he reminds us of, of that with the, with the kind of the bridge and the chorus. Oh, these are the various, these are the voices, or these are the lies. And I have believed them for the very last time. Why? Because hello, my name is what? If you're in Christ, the child of the one true King. This is who you are in Christ. This is you, who you are. I've been set free. I've been changed. First one, I've been saved. I've been changed. I've been set free. Amazing grace is a song I sing. Hello, my name is a child of the one true King. 
That is who we are. You're redeemed. You're a new creation. You've been justified. You have peace with God. You're a child of God. Well, here comes the question. If that is who I am in Christ, well, what happens this? What happens when a follower of Jesus sins? What happens? So he's starting today and getting into December. We will look and answer these questions again from the biblical perspective. What happens? Is this one of those things that, you know, I come to know Jesus, I become a follower of Jesus, and all of a sudden I sin, boom, I'm, I, that, that salvation is pulled away from me? Or is there some assurance that I have? Is there hope? Even beyond that coming to know Jesus as our Lord and Savior, is there hope? And that's where we're going to turn to in 1 John here and look at these first six verses here of chapter 2 where John is writing this letter. And, and first, in John, he is the Apostle John. He is writing this letter to a group of believers. And, and the reason why Paul writes his letters usually to a specific uh, a group of believers in, in a specific location. So that's why we call the, his letters by, by like Romans because he's writing that letter to the believers there in Rome. Why we call the First and Second Corinthians because he's writing the, the letter to the believers there in Corinth. Well, once you get beyond... Uh, once you get beyond Paul's letters, we get to what's called the general epistles or the general letters. Because they're writing to just more widespread, and that's where John fits in. He's, he's not writing to a specific, if you want to say, location, but he's writing to a, a, a group of believers kind of that, that are living uh, all throughout different locations, and he's wanting to help them understand that question. How do they know? How do they really know that they really are a believer in Jesus Christ? How do they know that they really have come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior? That's more modern what we would say. How do you know? Because there's early church, especially when John is writing this, there is this error that, that these false teachers would come and show up in a town and be like, hey, guess what? The Apostle Paul, Peter... Uh, John, they didn't really tell you the full gospel of Jesus. We got this special knowledge that you have to believe in and above what the gospel of Jesus. That's what Paul says, writes his letter there in Galatians. And he says, listen, if, if, if someone shows up on your doorstep saying something more that you have to believe than just Jesus' death and resurrection, then don't listen to them. Even if an angel shows up on your doorstep and so tells you you've got to believe more than just Jesus' death and resurrection, they are wrong. Let them be accursed. That's the mild form of it. Uh, Greek is a little more harder than that. Don't listen to them. Even nowadays, I don't care how famous the pastor is, if they are teaching something that you have to do above them, believe Jesus as Lord and Savior for your salvation, then cut it off. Don't listen to it anymore. And so John is writing this letter to help them understand. This is why I want you to know. That you have this assurance. As he says there, and we'll see this verse. This is, I want you to know that you have come to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. This is the assurance aspect. And so Paul, sorry, John starts off and he says in verse 1, My dear children, it's uh, Paul's way of saying, sorry, John's way of saying, I'm so used to saying Paul. John's way of saying is, no, my, my dear children, my, my, the children that I love. And he's not referring to his biological children, he's referring to his spiritual children. These are the people that he knows that he has taken the gospel personally to them. 
My dear children, I write these to you, this letter to you, so that you will not sin. What? Yeah, John, I'm writing this letter to you so that you will walk in obedience to God as a follower of Jesus. So that you will not sin. I know we're jumping into Paul, sorry, John's argument here, but the, the very chapter one, if you is the first part of chapter one is if you jump up there, you'll see that this is what we've heard from the beginning, verses one through through four of chapter one. Is if you want to know, the, you know, John is right to saying this, what I'm going to tell you is true, and the reason why you can trust me is because I saw Jesus with my own eyes, I touched him with my own hands, I ate with him. In fact, even after he rose from the dead. He ate to prove that Jesus really did rise physically from the dead. This is what is true. And then he gets down to verse 5 and he says this of chapter 1. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you referring to Jesus. This is the message we have heard from Jesus and we declare to you. God is light and in him there is no darkness of all. At all. In the scriptures light and darkness is, is symbolic. Many times. God is light. God is holy. God is perfect. There's no darkness in Him at all. Therefore, God is holy and He can have nothing to do with sin. God is holy. And He can have nothing to do with sin. That's why only perfect people can stand in the presence of God. And then he gets to verse 6. But if we claim we have fellowship with Him, with God, if we claim that we are in Christ, yet we walk in darkness, we walk in a lifestyle of sin, what happens? We lie and do not live out the truth. And so verse 1, Paul, sorry, John goes on and says, listen, my dear children, I write this to you so you will, you will not sin. Because when you come to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, that change takes place. And as a follower of Jesus, we are to live holy lives. You see, so many times in our lives, and maybe it's because of the American evangelical church, we're so focused on numbers and so focused on, on how many people did you did, did, came to the, know the Lord, that you realize that's just the start of this. But so many times in, in churches around America, that's, that's like, yeah, we're celebrating. That, and yes, we should celebrate the, the amount of people that, that come and put their, that public confession. But that's just the start of this journey. Do you realize? You know what? I like to ask questions. And I know sometimes people don't always like the questions that I ask. And one of the questions that I asked myself one time as a teenager, and I was always thinking in, as a teenager as well. But we came home from school one day and I was bullied we didn't call it bullying I just got picked fun of made fun of because I was a little different and I was in school still I'm a little different if you haven't noticed but uh, uh, but I was bullied in school and I remember asking this question sometime and I'm just honest with God in my devotions and saying God why am I here God it would be such better it would be so good you know if a person comes to know you as their Lord and Savior and boom you take them out of this world and come into the very presence of God. And I remember reading the Gospel of John and where Jesus has this time of prayer and He is praying for His disciples, but He also prays for His future disciples, future followers like you and I. And He says, Lord, I'm sending them into the world. 
as you have sent me into the world. Do you realize that? That's why, as believers in Jesus Christ, we're left here on this planet to be that salt and that light, to be those witnesses, to call people, to show people Jesus is the only way. As a follower of Jesus, we are to live holy lives. John calls us to live holy lives that are pleasing to God. Because what happens when you come to know Jesus Christ, that dead sinful life is gone, is buried. It's, and we'll see this uh, more in, in what Paul is saying uh, uh, in a couple weeks. Uh, that is gone, is buried, is, is dead. You are this new creation. And so, so we, this change takes place that our, our desires change. Our, our thinking is supposed to change. Our attitudes are supposed to change. Everything in life is supposed to change as we become followers of Jesus Christ. And so what happens is this. When a person comes to know Jesus Christ, according to John here, John chapter 1 and this verse chapter 2, this, we're supposed to change in such a way that we begin to walk in a way that is pleasing and honoring to God. Because God is light. And if we continue to live in a lifestyle of sin, according to John says here, if we continue to live in a lifestyle of sin, then we deceive ourselves, then we lie that we are actually followers of God because there's no change that takes place. Everything in our lives is supposed to change when we come make that public declaration that we are followers of Jesus Christ. Our thinking changes. What we desire begins to change or changes. How we live, how we talk, what we view on, our, in, on the internet, on TV, changes. Because we'll eventually talk about this because there's an extra person inside of us, the Holy Spirit, that empowers us to live a life that is pleasing and honoring to God. But if we just stop there, we're thinking, okay, that's nice, John, but have you seen my life? I don't live that way. And so John goes on in the next verses here and says this, I write this letter to you so that you will not sin, so that you walk in the light as God is in the light, because God is in the light, or holy, and we are to live holy lives. But if anyone does sin, okay, if a follower of Jesus, what happens if they sin? What happens if they, they do something that is not pleasing to God? What happens when they, they, they decide they, they don't walk in the light anymore? What happens when the attitude, what happens when you, when you treat the, uh, that person or you, you, you respond out of anger instead of compassion? What happens? And John says this, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with our Father, our Heavenly Father. That word advocate is actually the same word that John uses to describe uh, the Holy Spirit in John chapter 14, 15, and 16. When John says, you know, it's good for me to leave you. And he, this is what he's talking about in, in those chapters. He says, it's good for me to leave. And the disciples are kind of freaking out. It's like, no, we don't want you to leave. We want you to stay here. We want you to be the king that, that we want you to be. He said, no, it's good for me to leave because when I leave, God's going to send another helper, another per person to come and walk alongside you just like I have been with you for the past three years. And that's what that word advocate in the NIV means, helper. Jesus is our helper with the Father. Jesus is our helper with the Father. Jesus is the advocate. That, 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 that defense attorney is what it's talking about there. When we stand before 
or if you ever committed a crime, if you stand before a judge, you have the prosecuting attorney that says this is why this person is guilty, but then you have an attorney as well to, to kind of combat that and say, listen, judge, this is why this person is innocent. The defense attorney. John says that is what we have. If we sin as a follower of Jesus Christ, we have a helper. We have a defense attorney with the Father. Well, why do we need a defense attorney with the Father? Because why? Because God is holy. And He can have nothing to do with sin. Even after we become followers of Jesus, God doesn't change. Even when we sin as followers of Jesus, we need Jesus to go to the Father and say, I paid for that one too. I paid for that one too. Because God is holy. And God has to judge sin. Has to. That's why Jesus is that defense attorney up there with our Heavenly Father and saying, yep, that one too. You see, according to Romans chapter 3, Jesus is our means of forgiveness initially. When you come to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, the moment you come and you realize that you are a sinner in need of a Savior, according to Romans chapter 3, Jesus is the means that we find that forgiveness through of our sins. But here in John chapter 2, in verse 2, Jesus is also our continual means of forgiveness. When we sin as a follower of Jesus Christ, we have to go, and, and again, it's because of what Jesus has done on the cross that we continually have forgiveness of that sin. We find forgiveness because of what Jesus has done for us. Because not only is He our, our defense attorney to the Father, but in verse 2, He is also the atoning sacrifice for our sins. That word atoning sacrifice means that Jesus paid the price that is necessary to appease our sin. Well, why does our sin need to be appeased? Why does there need to be a sacrifice? Because it goes back to this. God is holy. And He can have nothing to do with sin. He has to judge sin. Again, maybe we don't really think about all these things that happens in our lives. When a person, when we come to know Jesus, we don't really think about what happens up in heaven when, when as a follower of Jesus, maybe we, we lie or maybe we, 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 we say, oh, that's not a big deal. I can do that. But according to God's eyes, that's sin. And we don't have this heavenly view of thinking in ourselves, well, that, 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 that God, Jesus is there saying, yeah, I, I paid for that one too. To appease the wrath of God. Because God is holy. He has to deal with sin. Jesus is not only our initial forgiveness, but Jesus continues to forgive us as that atoning sacrifice to pay the penalty for that sin. But how do we know? How do we know that we are really in Christ? How do we know that we have this assurance that when I take my final breath here on this planet, that I will enter into the very presence of God. How do I know? Because this is one of the difference between, between the, in the gospel of Jesus and, and like so many other world religions. So many, if you think of the, the 
Muslims or you think of these religions that you are, that they have to earn your salvation. There's no assurance whatsoever. They're just hoping that, well, I hope my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. So many people in America think that as well. Well, I hope I gave enough. Oh, I hope I've listened to enough sermons. Oh, I hope I, I spent enough time in, in this church or that church. Oh, I, I, I hope I was baptized or, or whatever. How do you really know that we will have assurance knowing that when I take my final breath here, that I will wake up in the very presence of God because that's what the Scripture says. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Well, John goes on and says this. We know that we have come to know Him by how? If we keep His commandments. How do we know? Because there's going to be a change in your life. Because that's who you are in Christ. You're that new creation. And how you are in Christ is going to affect how you live your life. We don't do these good deeds because we're trying to earn our salvation. We do these good deeds because that's what, how, how we des that our desires change. We do these good deeds because that's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Because we live like Jesus. How do we know that we have really become a follower of Jesus? Because we follow, we obey His commands. We know that we are His followers because we obey I know when we were talking about the gender identity and sexual orientation, I used this illustration of the iceberg. The Titanic sank because it hit an iceberg. The interesting thing, if you and you kind of, if you are, if you look at the history of some of that incident, what happened was they didn't hit the iceberg on top of the water; they actually hit the iceberg underneath the water. Because in an iceberg, what happens is what you see on top of the water is only a small part of the entire iceberg. There's this giant iceberg that is unseen that is below the water. And this is a real picture of what the Bible talks about. This is the reason why I love church history and I really enjoy learning about the life of Martin Luther and, and what he did uh, as uh, that as that in Germany and where he started the Protestant Reformation. And he, he didn't really, he kind of started it in Germany. There was other things that was happening uh, in other parts of Europe. But he really wrestled with the book of James to the point that he, he didn't really, he, didn't, he came very close to saying that the book of James in our New Testament, uh, there were some troubling things that were written in James that he really wrestled with and was really trying to figure out if it was even biblical or not. Because James put so much emphasis on your behavior, on the good deeds you do. And he came out of the Catholic tradition that taught him, well, as long as, as, long as you do X, Y, and Z, you're okay with God. And he came to that place and he's like, no, it doesn't matter what you do, you're never going to be okay with God. But when you understand the book of James in this illustration with the iceberg, you realize that that top part of what you see is our actions. The other stuff that is unseen, that's what a person believes. And our beliefs affect what we do. And that's the, what the book of James is all about. You say you have faith? Well, that's fantastic. Even the demons know there's a God. But my faith affects how I live. That's the difference. 
Faith without works is dead because talk is cheap. And so John is saying, listen, you really want to know if you are a follower of Jesus Christ? Then look at your actions. Is there a change that has taken place? Do you desire things that are pleasing and honoring to God? Do you desire to walk in obedience to God? Do you desire things of God? Or do you continue to desire bent towards wickedness and evil and sin? According to John, it says, we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commands. In fact, the rest of the verse 4, whoever says, I know Him, but does not do what He commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. Why? Because again, talk is cheap. Anybody can say, I'm a follower of Jesus. And, and Jesus would say, well, look at their lifestyle. And we'll talk about this in, in, in the weeks ahead. The fruit of the Spirit. No, I was joking around with Dave at the trunk retreat. He would memorize the fruit of the Spirit song. Uh, the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and all the hand motions and everything that goes along with that. Great song. But that's what our lives should be coming more like. That's what it naturally produces. We don't have to do anything. We just have to give up control and allow the Holy Spirit to naturally produce that in us. Because our beliefs affect what we do. Verse 5, anyone obeys His Word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in Him. Again, how do we know that we are followers of Jesus Christ? According to John, this is how we know that we are in Him. Whoever claims to live in Him must live as Jesus did. This word must is that we are obligated. This isn't wistful thinking. Whoever is in Christ is obligated to live their lives like Jesus. Does that mean we go out and get robes and tunics and walk in sandals and let our hair start growing down and be like, that's, hey, we're going to live like Jesus. We're, is that really what that means? No. When I was growing up, there was a movement called WWJD, What Would Jesus Do? In fact, it became so popular that there was a song by um, Big, Big Ten Revival, thank you, Matt, Big Ten Revival, that asked that question, what would Jesus do? The heart of that question is good. Now, it got, it got goofy towards the end of this movement, which is why people threw it out. The, the old, old saying, you know, you don't throw the baby out with the bathwater mentality. People threw that question out because there started to be, because it was such a huge movement, uh, that uh, all of a sudden uh, you started to see com commercials ask this question, what type of car would Jesus drive? Well, he had 13, 13 people, so he had the 12 disciples and himself, so he's going to drive this, this Cadillac Escalade, I'm thinking. Probably not, but, you know, not sure if you're going to boost your sales with that. But things got goofy at the end. But the question remained the same. In fact, here's some of the lyrics of the song. What would Jesus do walking in my shoes, working at my job, going to my school? And I hear people say, Jesus is the way. I believe and that is why I'm asking you, what would Jesus do? It's that question of asking and saying, okay, as followers of Jesus Christ, I am obligated to live like Jesus. So how would Jesus live in my community? How would Jesus live at my job? How would Jesus live when I'm going to school? How would Jesus live 
And it's asking that question. It actually comes from a book called In Its Steps. There is a homeless guy that comes and interrupts a church service, uh, uh, a church uh, that is uh, fairly well-to-do, prim and proper. This homeless guy comes and asks that question of, you know, you guys are just playing games. And so a small group in that church began to say, you know, what if we actually asked that question, what would Jesus do, and actually try to walk in his steps in my everyday life? And that's what Charles Sheldon goes on and how there's this life change that takes place. People's thinking starts to change. People's attitudes towards each other start to change. People, again, not just focusing on, on, and again, we're going into Thanksgiving and going into Christmas, and, and we're, it's all about what we're going to get on Christmas Day. When you start asking that question, what would Jesus do? It changes every perspective in your life. And you really realize that there's something more to life than the stuff. You see, a follower of Jesus is obligated. We don't have a choice. If you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior and you publicly have said, I am a follower of Jesus, then this is who, what you signed up for. This is who you are in Christ. And this is how that decision of I'm a follower of Jesus now affects every single ounce of your life. Everything. Which is why I say, being a follower of Jesus, that decision, do you want to follow Jesus, is more important than any other decision that you'll, that you'll make. More important than who you're going to marry. What, more important than what occupation you're going to have. More important than, than what vehicle or house or where you're going to live. Who, if you're going to follow Jesus, all those issues come secondary. Because a follower of Jesus, am I going to follow Jesus that influences everything else. A follower of Jesus is obligated to live like Jesus. So back to our original question, what happens? What happens as a, as a follower of Jesus? What happens if I sin? Does God come and remove my salvation? Does God come and wipe me out? The assurance is no. It's a Jesus who cleanses us from our sin initially. He also cleanses us from our sin daily as followers of Jesus. I wish I could have 12 more hours explaining more about how this all works. The good part is, is we will have 12 more weeks explaining more about how this all works. Because there's so much, I mean, this, and in a real sense, this is kind of the introduction to that question of what happens when a follower of Jesus sins because because you, there's so many things, and you're probably sitting there and thinking, okay, how does this all play out? How does this, the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives, how does this, like, like, okay. But understand this, is our forgiveness of our sins initially, we, we had to get to that place where we understand we are sinners in need of a Savior, and the only hope that we have is by crying out and saying, Lord Jesus, would you save me from my sin? And as a follower of Jesus Christ, we have that assurance of salvation because there is that life change and it's the same way. Jesus allows us to be forgiven of the sin that we committed even after we are followers of Jesus. But that doesn't mean we live a sinful lifestyle anymore. And that's the difference. Our hopes, our desires, everything in our life changes and we are obligated to live like Jesus. 
to live in a way that is pleasing and honoring to him.